With that, will you please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians? We've come as far as chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers or elders will bring you a Bible. We need one back here, please. Uh, one up here, please. Um, yep, right over here, Kev. And then one right up here, please. Anyone else need a Bible? Guys are good. All right. And just one other announcement as you, some of you are turning to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Just an update. I, I gave it on Wednesday, but I know some of you weren't here on Wednesday. The land. So you guys know we're in the process of purchasing the land, 10.4 acres and all of that. Uh, we dug the well. Uh, we drilled for the well. Uh, we, I didn't dig anything. We drilled for the well. Um, and we got to 170 feet and we hit water. Praise the Lord. Uh, we hit 30 gallons per minute already. So uh, tomorrow they're going to finish the digging, um, and we're going to go into 500 feet, so we have a nice reservoir. Um, so that's what we're doing, and uh, just keep praying. Pray tomorrow that it goes from 30 to like 100, and it just literally comes like a geyser out. That's what I keep praying. I'm like in Isaiah reading chapter 44 and how the, you know, the water of the land, and I was just reading that, and I'm like, how cool would that be to be there tomorrow and watch as they're drilling, and all of a sudden they're like, stop, stop, move the drill. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't know. I just, I'm thankful to God we already got 30 gallons per minute. That's awesome. But um, so we met all the contingencies on the land. Everything there is done. So the only thing we're going to do is uh, have that Board of Supervisors meeting on the 23rd of this month in two weeks. This is the final meeting we have to have. Uh, presuming we get approval, please pray for the Board of Supervisors. Pray we get approval. Then we uh, move forward with the closing and we, we purchase the land. And then we start the process of planning and building, which hopefully, and Lord willing, we might be able to be in within a year to a year and a half. So we're hoping next school year we can actually be in that building, and it will be wonderful for the church um, so y'all can spread out a little bit more and kind of have some wiggle room. So, well, with that, now we're going to begin in verse 13 of chapter 2 here, uh, just as a way of sort of um, kind of reminder, uh, if you don't mind, if I can go back and just give... Uh, sort of context. This is an encouragement for the last day believers. I mean, really, I, I say that's for us today, but in context, 2,000 plus years ago, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this for a church that was struggling in, in a lot of fear. They were going through suffering, affliction, persecution, and they thought that they were in the Great Tribulation. Paul, in the first uh, epistle, the Thessalonians, had assured them, you are not in the Great Tribulation. Can you imagine that? It had to be a shock. Wait a minute. You mean this kind of suffering and persecution is normal? Yes, Christian, it is normal. If you're suffering for Christ, it is absolutely normal. Okay, well, that's not part of the plan. You know, nobody wants to take that required course. But then they probably came to the next conclusion, just like you and I would have. Our next question is, well, well, then why are we suffering like this? If we're not in these last days of the great tribulation, then, then why is it so bad? And Paul goes on to explain in chapter two and the early parts and really chapter one of why suffering exists, because it ultimately brings glory and honor to God, because we don't run away from God, we run to God. And that becomes a huge witness to all those around us, because when we're going through difficulties, uh, trials, circumstances, your life might be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. You are the living epistle to be known by men and women, to be read and known by men and women. And so Paul, uh, obviously a pastor's heart, he wants to encourage them for the last days. And I believe he wants to do that for us here this morning. So let's bow our heads, we'll pray, and then we'll begin in the word. Father, we do thank you for this holy word. We thank you that you have anointed it and inspired it this morning. We pray, God, that you will settle it into our hearts. And that we will receive all that you want to give us here, Lord. 
this fresh food, this filling that we need, Jesus. We pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, God, that as we understand these things originally written to the Thessalonians, God, we know that these things are for us today. These things needs be. And this time that we're living is so precious and that, God, I believe we are in these last days. Only you know, Lord Jesus, but God, you tell us to all live expectant. You tell us to be ready. So Jesus, as we read these things, we take them to heart and we ask for the power and ammunition of your Holy Spirit to settle it here now. Let us have eyes to see and ears to hear what your Spirit has to say. And we pray all of this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Verses 13, or verse 13 in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a you know, you could say the old-fashioned thing has a mouthful. That is a mouthful. There's a lot of meat on that bone, okay, in what he's saying here in verse 13 and 14. First, he begins by saying, but we are bound to give thanks, okay? That word bound, that idea there, is it's an obligation. It's obligatory. He's saying we are bound. We're, we're, we're obligated to do this. In the Greek, that's the connotation it means. But what obligation, by what means? He's describing the moral sense. Pastor Paul, God, the Holy Spirit, the idea here in that knowing that God had planted that church, he'd only been there, what, three Shabbats? Maybe some argue a month to a month and a half at most. And the Lord planted this work. They're a young church, yet we read in 1 Thessalonians, they're a model church to that area. So and so reading, we know that, that this obligation is that he knows that he needs to pray, he needs to be pouring into them, and watch God bring the fruit in the increase. So clearly there's a moral sense that he says to give thanks to God. Why would he be giving thanks to God? Because he knows God's the one that authored that work. God adds the increase to the church daily. Not man, not woman, not a plan, but it's God. And it's always been God. And that's why he comes through and he says, look, we're bound to give thanks. Next, Paul, very clearly here, if you look at it, he says he calls them beloved of God. Please notice there's not a single word that's in Scripture, not a jot, not a tittle, that isn't inspired, that isn't supposed to be there by God for a specific time, purpose, and understanding. Every single jot and tittle. So when we look at this here, and he says, <laughs> and, he, and he says it so clearly, the way he says it, beloved by God, he's drawing our attention to what it's really all about what it's really all about. It's a great reminder for us that God's love for us is primarily motivated by what? By his love. It's not what we can do for him. It's not how we can serve him. It's not, it's not all the things that we try to amp it up to be or strive for it to be. Simply being a son or daughter of God is all that he's ever desired, relationship. That's what he wants. He doesn't want more religion. He's had enough religion. He wants relationship. And that's what he's drawing. He says, you're beloved by God here. It, it, it tells us the primary, primary motivation of all his work through us is love. That doesn't get talked about enough. Because God from the beginning chose you from salvation. Now, I, I clearly we get into man's philosophies here. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because I really don't care what men 
or women think for that matter. I want to hear what the word of God has to say. Um, you don't come here to hear man's wisdom to listen to this knucklehead. You come here because the word of God is going line by line and verse by verse. Amen. And at the end of the day, he's telling us that God has chosen us, right? Is he saying he just chose the Thessalonians? That was it. They closed shop. That was boom, done. No. When we really study this and we look at the exhaustive, well, we won't go through every scripture this morning, otherwise it won't be this morning. But as we go through a few of these, what he's telling us is he chose us for salvation, right? Paul is praising a sovereign God for the choice of God bringing the self, these uh, Thessalonians to salvation. That's the first thing he sees. He's praising God for it. And I hope we all pray for those to be saved and then rejoice when they are saved and receive Christ, right? But please notice what he says here. This is very important. He's not grammatically challenged. The Lord is not grammatically challenged. He says, from the beginning. Now, that's a real rub for some people because people that have created their own philosophies of this and said, well, wait a minute. God has only desired that some go to heaven, some go to hell. Like there's good apples and bad apples. What? My Bible tells me in Romans chapter 3 that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. None, none of what he hears arrived. Not one of us. He, he's made that very clear. As we walked into this door, the, the, the differences that we should be focusing on isn't the color of skin, the gender, or anything that's got to do with that, because that's all distraction. The real difference, are you a born-again believer in Christ? That's what it's always been about. Do you know Jesus? And those that don't know Jesus, are you willing to stand up and give them the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what it's always been about. And he's making it clear here, from the beginning, that was God's choice that every single human would be saved. Every single human. Because it's his, his plan. It's how it began. It begins with salvation. You know, God is certainly omniscient. He, know, he knows the beginning from the end. He saw what was going to happen. He knew Lucifer would fall. He knew all of that was going to happen. And God was going to work a plan of salvation right from the beginning. Please turn in your Bibles. Hold your finger here. Just turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. We're going to look at just a few, just a very small, small sampling of scripture here this morning that's going to go through this. I encourage you to take some time and do an exhaustive uh, a study on this. It's so much there. The, the idea that God would only save some or this idea of an elect or a group. No, before the very foundations of the earth, God has desired to save every single human being. Because after all, what, what's it all motivated by again? We just read it. Paul began. Beloved by what? God, it was all about love. And that hasn't changed 5,000 years later. So if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 4 with me, please. Just as he chose us, now he's talking to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians. So it's the Thessalonians and then what? The Ephesians that are the only ones that are the us? Of course not. He's talking to us today as well, right? In him, that's important, in Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Why? that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We're going to read that same sediment here in 2 Thessalonians. It's not just salvation, but it's sanctification. And that's always been the plan. He wants to save you, redeem you, and then he wants to take you and make you holy and set apart for him and his good purpose. That's always been the plan. And anybody who tries to tell you different, they're just spinning a web of man's lies, and they're just basically giving you man's wisdom because that's absolutely what Scripture teaches. And he also teaches it was God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't something that was an afterthought. It wasn't something that came out later because God went, well, you know, as I'm counting the humans now and, you know, hell's getting awful full here, we need to make, no. 
No, this was before the foundations of the world. Pastor, how do you know that? Turn to Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, please. Or 13, verse 8. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Not only did it tell, it, tell us that right here in Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him for the foundations of the world. He made it very clear. But maybe I'm just eisegeting and just taking one text out of context. That wouldn't be good hermeneutics. So let's be Bereans and study all of the counsel of God, Scripture. So when I go to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, chapter 13, verse 8 of Revelation, it tells me, all who dwell on the earth. Now, please allow me to explain context in Revelation chapter 13. He's talking about Antichrist. The first half, and first half of it talks about Antichrist. The latter half talks about the false prophet. That is what comprises chapter 13. Basically, what ultimately we know is the unholy trinity, right? Satan, uh, um, the Antichrist, and then the false prophet, the unholy trinity compared to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, okay? So just sort of, we're, since we're kind of, you know, parachuting right in, I wanted to give you context. Look at verse 8 here. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. We have to ask our question, ourselves a question here. In the Greek context, I think the construction of the Greek makes it really easy because you don't even need to ask this question. But in the English with the way the translation's made, what do you think he's saying here? What do you think was from the foundation of the beginning of the world? It, pretend you didn't just read Ephesians 1-4 that said that salvation and that that was his desire before the foundation of the world. Pretend you didn't read that passage yet. If you read this right here, it sounds like it's one of two things. Either Christ himself was slain before the foundations of the world, okay, or your name is written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world. Now, if Christ was slain before the foundations in the world, then please somebody tell me why we had to, 2,000 years ago, put him back on Calvary and throw him on a cross to forgive our sins. If he was slain before the foundation of the world, that was already paid. Why would he have to pay it again? That's where religion gets into trouble. You know, I think of religion where they turn around and I don't need to name denomination or anything like that, but religious groups, cults, different things like that, when they turn around and say, no, we need to put Jesus Christ back on the cross. Every time that we celebrate communion, that actually becomes Jesus. That's like we're putting him back up there. It's a you know, propitiation substitute again. What? That's not what my Bible teaches me. My, my Bible teaches he's not on the cross. He's in heaven. He's, he's seated or standing at the right hand of the Father, right? So I get a little passionate, forgive me, but... But this is important because this is how you end up in false doctrine. This is how you end up in religion instead of relationship. So clearly here, we have to ask the question, is it that he was slain before the foundation of the world and then we slay him again? Well, not we, but I guess I did. I put him on the cross because of my sin. Did I do that again 2,000 years ago, even though that was already done before the foundation? Or was your name and my name and all of humanity's name written in the book of life? And when our name was written there, God's desire, because it's already written in there, is that we would be what? Reconciled and saved. Is that God's heart and desire? Is that a God of love? Yes, it is. Pastor, you're pretexting. I don't see all that in there. You're, you're giving me a portion and then you're adding man's wisdom. I'm glad you said that. Turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He talks to the church at Sardis. This is the dead church. You're Bereans, the Holy Spirit's your teacher. You're, you're well taught, so you're, you're going to ask these right questions. This is good. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, I've, I shared this when we were going through the book of Revelation, those that are with us together. I'm not, again, I'm not playing to anyone's um, 
mental capacity here or anything like that, uh, I'm going to ask you all a simple question. Please do your best to answer that. For me to take your name and remove it, your name has to be what? In it. Uh, look, that don't have to be grammatically correct, but we all said it. In it. We understood it, right? Our names are written because the only way I can remove a name is if the name's already there. How does your name get removed? When humans reject Jesus Christ. Don't we read that in the Gospels? Don't we read that in the epistles when he talks about the, the searing of the Holy Spirit? Or let me say it even a different way. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're, you're familiar with that teaching and doctrine, right? Most of you. Well, who does the Holy Spirit, you've heard me say it, who's the Holy Spirit testify of? Jesus Christ. Always. When Jesus Christ physically walked this earth 2,000 years ago, he says, I came to do what? The will of my Father in heaven. Jesus always proclaims the Father. Do you see that? He always testifies to the Father. So the very essence of blaspheming the Holy Spirit means you do what? You reject Christ because the Holy Spirit is testifying of Jesus. And by you rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit, therefore blaspheming Christ, right? Very, very elementary, very, very simple. We can understand that in the faith. We understand what Scripture is saying. It's that same premise. How can we take and remove a name unless the name was there? It has to be. So anybody or this man's wisdom or this nonsense of where, you know, God has just raised up certain people to be saved and the rest are uh, cannon fodder or figure out a different name for it, hell fodder, excuse the term, to think that that's not scriptural, that's not biblical. You'd have to throw out all of these passages or try to explain them away. can't be. It can't be. You can turn back to 2 Thessalonians because the idea of what God is really trying to communicate to us here is that he wants to live with us in intimacy and harmony. That's what it's all been about. It's, I know it's hard for us to reconcile why a perfect God would want to live with an imperfect human, right? Like me or humanity. But remember, it was not that way from the beginning. Everything was what? Very good, wasn't it? Genesis chapter 1 verse 31. Everything was very good, wasn't it, in the garden? until original sin. So the original idea here, and Isaiah 14 alludes to some of that. I mean, God being omniscient, he knows all things. Again, allows free will. He allowed Lucifer to fall due to pride. Now just think about that for a minute. Back up, right? Okay, take the whole counsel of God. We know, we can almost even understand why that even happened. Why, why did that happen? God is eternal. Man is was, let me put it that way, in the garden, immortal. Angels were immortal, right? We are now mortal after the fall. Okay, you're here, I'm here, we're mortal. We're, we're, check. All right, think about this for a minute. God the Father's in the throne room. Lucifer, we know Ezekiel 28, tells us that he was a worship leader and that he also was in the throne room of God. We get that from Ezekiel 28. We also know from Isaiah chapter 14 that he said, I will be like the God most high. How many times? Five times, right? He had a God complex, right? He wanted to be eternal. He was created to be immortal, but he wanted to be eternal. Well, that's a problem because you and I, in my own capacity, don't have myself, or I don't have the capability, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, I, this, incorruption mu or this corruption must put on what? Incorruption. This mortality must put on immortality, right? I can't do it in myself. I don't possess that ability to do that. No different than Lucifer can't be eternal no matter how much he wishes it, no matter how much he tries to come against God. He can't change the fact that he's not a wrench and he was made as a hammer. 
Okay, it's that simple. It doesn't change. It doesn't matter your ideology. It doesn't matter your, 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 your science. It none of that matters. At the end of the day, God is God. Whether somebody believes he's God or not, it doesn't change the inoperability for God to operate as God. It's not required by my intellect or yours to understand that. It simply is. And I'm so grateful for that. But fast forward a little bit, or maybe even rewind and fast forward. So Satan's in the throne room of God. He was a worship leader. Man's created. We know all the angels, or we believe all the angels were created for what would be for all of this lifespan for eternity, right? That way, because there's not a machine up in heaven that we read about in Genesis in the first two chapters that he's like, dun, 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 popping angels out like cookie, right? Angel cookie. There's no dun, dun, engine up there that you're just popping them out. So all the angels were created that were going to be. They, I believe, were created first. They were servants that way. They were serving God. Then God created man. He put him in a garden. And he was a special creation because God knows every hair on our head. We read through the God. He's a special creation. Lucifer didn't like that. He didn't like that he was turning around and looking or God's attention was being redirected from Lucifer to man. What did Lucifer become? Jealous. How do I know that? Because he wanted to change the rules to the game. How do we know that? Because Isaiah 14 says, I will. I, 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 I will be the God most high. Why else would he want to be the God most high unless he was going to rewrite the story or rewrite the account or change the rules to the game? Because he didn't like it. He was jealous, envious. And so that consumed him with what? Pride. Because of the pride he falls, right? It was free will choice, just like humans have free will choice. Angels were given the same capability. He took a third of the angels with him, all that will ever be, okay? They fall. He's now turning around. Now, how do I know that he's jealous of humans? How do I know that it's a problem with humanity? Well, because the very first thing that he takes is an act. The very first thing he does, somebody wrongs you, you're going after it, right? You don't, beloved. But somebody else wrongs you, you're going, you're, you're going after it, right? You're, where does he go? He goes to the garden. And who does he go to? He goes to Eve. And how does he begin to deceive her? What lie does he begin to tell her? You know what? God knows things you don't know, Eve. And he's kept them from you. But if you eat of this, you can know all the things God knows. And you know what? You can even be like him. You can rewrite the rules to the game too, Eve. How about that? Wow. Why would God withhold that information from me? She begins to wonder. I wonder where Adam is at that moment. Where's the covering? Where's the covering? Maybe he was fishing. I don't know. But he's not there right at the moment. Later on, we tell that he turns and he looks at her and he says, she says, why don't you take a bite? He directly disobeys God. She, he received direct orders from God not to eat of that fruit, right? We know that because Scripture tells us that. We didn't hear that. Now, is it to, can you assume that Eve understood that? Yes, you could assume. But does it declare it in Scripture that Eve did not know? We don't read that. We know Adam. It was told very clearly to Adam by a command, right? And we presume Eve kind of received that command. So Adam turns around. He eats of the... The, the whole thing, he eats of the fruit because he disobeys God. They then realize they're what? <gasps> they're naked, right? Naked and afraid. No, no, they're not naked and afraid. They're naked and, and they are afraid, actually, because they're in the garden. They realize for the first time they're exposed in a way that they hadn't previously been exposed or never even understood that because what entered in? What did God say would happen if they ate of that fruit? They would die. But wait a minute, did they die right at that moment? Or did they look down and go... <gasps> 
right? Naked and afraid, right? What was he talking about? Spiritual death. He was not talking about physical death. Otherwise, Adam and Eve wouldn't be there, nor would the children, Cain and Abel, nor would Seth, so on. We wouldn't be here. What does John 3 talk about? As a matter of fact, he had this same conversation uh, the Lord did with Nick at night, right? Nicodemus. He turned around and came to Nick, and he says, Nick, here's the problem. I'm telling you things that are of heaven, and you're not really, you know, grasping them because you can't even grasp these things of earth that I'm sort of telling you here. Because he's at, you know, well, what do I have to do to be saved? Well, you have to be born again. Well, I can't possibly crawl back up into my mother's womb and be saved that way. That's, that's physically impossible. And can, can you imagine Jesus so gracious? You know, I, I imagine his face wasn't like, like, really, Nick? Like, really? One of the Sanhedrin, religious leader of the day, Nick? Like, this is the best you got for me? No, he doesn't do that. He turns around and he, you know, Jesus so gracious, so loving. He's just like, oh, no, Nick, that's not what I mean. What I'm talking about is spiritual I'm talking about spiritual, that, that mankind and humanity was spiritually separated from God because of sin. There was a death that occurred, but that death was of the spirit. As a matter of fact, Genesis 5 says that after that, we we're creating the likeness and image of who? Of Seth. Genesis 5, read it. We were created in likeness and image of Christ to begin with, or God. But then after that, we were created in likeness and image of Seth until Genesis 5 tells us that. Until we did what? We received Jesus Christ. And now who are we created in likeness and image again in spirit? Jesus Christ. And what else did he do? Not only did he save us, but he said, I who, I who have begun the good work and he will finish that good work. What was he talking about? What's that good work? We call that sanctification. So it wasn't just salvation, but it's salvation through what? Sanctification, isn't that what we just read in 2 Thessalonians? What does that mean? Well, let's continue. He, he turns around and, 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 you know, forgive the backdrop there, but I mean, it explains why there's been an attack and spiritual warfare ever since the beginning of humanity, because we have an enemy, because he is jealous and envious of the human relationship that was established between God and man and woman. And he's done everything he can from that point on to keep every man and a woman away from worshiping the one true God. That was his whole thing. Now, who is the greatest persecuted and afflicted people group on the earth? If you go back historically and you look at wars, battles, you look at just genocide, and you count the numbers of that, six million people trying to rewrite history saying a Holocaust never happened. Who, who is that people group? Israel. What was special about Israel? Nothing. You'd be answer, you would answer correctly as God had suggested because God wrote it in Scripture. There was nothing special about you, Israel. I chose you, but there was nothing. It wasn't because you were the most numerous. It wasn't because you were the best looking or you had the greatest wit. It was none of that. It's because I love you. Just as he's talked to each one, he loves us. He loved and he says, you're my chosen people. Praise God. The Jews are his chosen people and always will be. And because of that, he turned around and he established them. Now, let me ask you a question. What people group have faced the most amount of affliction, persecution, and suffering in human, in human uh, life or human terms? Israel. Maybe that's just coincidental. Maybe that's coincidental. Or was it that Lucifer knows his Bible as well, and he knew that even beginning right after chapter 3 of Genesis, what was the woman looking for? Ever since that point, all of humanity until the time of Christ and his coming, what was that woman Eve looking for? It says it, even capitalize it so we can't miss it. The seed. The seed that would do what? That would come and redeem, that would save, that would sanctify. 
She's been looking for it. She was looking for it in, in each child. And Cain and Abel came. Oh, okay, okay, that's not the seed. Then Seth comes. Maybe you're the seed. And so on and so forth. And then Jesus Christ, Messiah, comes. Israel, excited, right? Because maybe this is Messiah, the Messiah. But what were they doing? They, they didn't really understand or interpret Isaiah. For example, chapter 40 and on, when they looked at nation and people and what Messiah was going to be, they, they expected him to come and overthrow Rome, to overthrow their oppressors and focus on the temporal. Because that's, that's what they thought. He's going to overthrow Rome and then he's going to establish his kingdom and then we're going to rule, right? Or we're, we're no longer going to be picked on, Israel. But that wasn't God's plan, was it? He came to die. What he came to do was settle the eternal foundation that God had established from the very beginning, which was salvation and sanctification. And that was always God's plan because he already knew what Lucifer was going to do because of free will. He already knew what Adam and Eve were going to do because of free will. And he is so in love with you and I and all of the world and humanity that he would stop at nothing to make sure that he provided a way that every single soul could be saved. That's the God you and I serve. That's the God we love. And don't let anybody lie to you and tell you anything different. He is a God of love. He is a God of love. Now, it doesn't just, again, end there. We also read that God's plan didn't stop with salvation, but it was the beginning through what? Sanctification, right? What's that word sanctification mean? You look at a lexicon or a translation in the Greek. The idea behind it is consecration, to be consecrated. It's purification. What is purity? You, you've heard the, the term holy. What does holy mean? To be holy. All of you are to be holy. I'm to be holy, right? We're to be set apart. We're to be set apart for God. To do what? To sort of just pine? No, to be used by God, to be in relationship with God, to have intimacy with the Lord. God's desire to set us apart or set apart humanity to himself. Look at what he says in uh, 1 Thessalonians here, chapter 4, verse 7. He says, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Which is why I, I sometimes have a problem with, with religions or organized religions that turn around and say, the goal is the ring fence, to put up a big fence and stay in these four walls and never go outside of these four walls. Or, or, to, or to have a religion where, like, you know, you know the anti-Baptist or the anti-Separist movement? Do you, are you familiar with that? The anti-Baptist? So church history. So um, the anti, what we know today, a lot of uh, came from the Puritan work or the, um, uh, the Amish. Some of you know the Amish? Okay, that idea, the idea that we sort of set apart that way and we, we kind of have our thing, okay. Um, God says we're to be in the world but not, of the world. So the goal is not to sort of get away from humanity and populations to ring fence ourselves around. No, it's quite the opposite. Jesus Christ didn't come and then sort of uh, be around the people and then sort of buy land and distance and distance and distance himself around from where the darkness was. No, he was the light in the presence of darkness. And it says the darkness cannot do what? Can't overcome. It can't overcome the light. The light always overcomes the darkness. That's what you and I are. We are those vessels of light because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So we are those beacons of light that cannot be hidden, right? On a hill or on a mountaintop, we cannot be hidden. 
That's what he's talking about. We reflect light. That's why in Revelation we read, when we get to heaven one day, there are no lights. There's no sun. There's no moon. There's nothing else like that. Why? Because we are the light of Christ. He refracts that light through himself. He is the light. He is the sun, literally, <laughs> you know, the sun, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. And then literally from that, he reflects the light and even the walls of the city. Did you ever pay attention in Revelation why the color of the walls are they are the colors they are? Because they're almost like this glass kind of like refracting so that the, the light of Christ reflects off the walls of the light in, in um, the, the city, in the walled city. It's going to reflect through us. Through, oh my gosh, it's going to be so bright, so amazing, so beautiful. Color like you have never seen color. Color like you've never seen color. The way God is going to do that. And he's designed it that way. He doesn't need a sun or a moon. The spacesuits we're wearing now aren't going to be required to be a blood system that's going to require carbon and all those things to live. A heart that needs to pump and everything like that. We're not going to have to be worried about cold and hot. How do I know that? Because you don't have a sun and a moon to regulate those things. Okay, so simple science, right? Simple physiology, right? Otherwise, if you took a moon away from us, we would do what? We would die of frostbite. We would die because we'd be frigid, right? Our blood would begin to thicken. Our hearts would uh, pump harder. We'd be either burst or what would happen? We'd slow down and cease to exist, right? Fact. Medical fact. None of that exists in heaven. Why? Because Christ is that light. And he is in where? Us. So to say that we're not the light and we're not to be the light of the world, he's the light of the world, but we're through us, we're not to be that light on a hilltop. That's why he doesn't want us to pull away. He wants to be in it. He wants us in it because he's given us the greatest privilege to do what? To stand fast, to be a vessel, and to be used, if nothing else, to reflect the light of Jesus Christ through the gospel, the only true gospel. There are no other gospels. There are, is no other way. Galatians 1.6, there's one gospel and there's an alternate gospel one leads to heaven, one leads to hell. Purity, sanctification, separation from the world unto God. That's the only separation that we're being told that we are to adhere to. Separation from the world and the fact that we're not to take on the unholy, unrighteous, uncleanliness things that we've talked about before. As I said in First Thessalonians chapter 4, again, verse 7, you know, that idea there. He said, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. It's exactly what he means. Why? As I mentioned from the beginning, why? I mean, I'm wretched. Why would he want a relationship with me? Because he's madly in love with his creation. We're a special creation to him. What did he tell us in Matthew 6? He used it in the context of worrying. Because everybody in here has anxiety, and that'd be a lie if anybody said they didn't. Everyone here has anxiety of some capacity or another. And what's the root cause of anxiety, right? We all know this. We pretend, but we know. The lack of control, isn't it? The lack of control. The fact that we can't control an outcome, that produces in us what we call and we term anxiety. And every one of us has to deal with it on one capacity or one plane or another until we do something that God has intended us to do all along, and that's to take the yoke off that we're putting on, put on his yoke, and do what? surrender because then we don't need to micromanage God and then we turn around and recognize oh Lord now I see it's your will be done not my will because that's part of where the rub comes in right it's my will against his and 
that also leads to the anxiety when I don't see it going the way. And then if I live my life in a way that's not honoring or pleasing or not holy or clean, now I start just, I'm just juggling. And I wonder, Lord, why do I feel so heavy and labored? And to realize that my God doesn't want that for me, that he wants me to have true rest. That's what he says. Come to me, all you who are what? Come on, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden. What? And I will give you rest. You know the scripture. It's, it's not just a, a nice saying. It's a promise. It's a promise. It's living after him. It's living that sanctified life, being set apart unto God. Why? Because he loves us. It's exactly how Paul started out here in this chapter, or in this passage we're reading. And I just want you to think about that so we can understand this for a minute. Parents, you have a child, right? Or children, plural. Do you remember the first time that you saw your son or your daughter? They didn't look up and go, hey. I mean, that would have freaked you out, right? If that baby would have been like, hey, what's up? You'd have been like, oh, no, that didn't happen. That baby turned around and just kind of cooed. You couldn't even understand what that baby was saying. But wasn't there an immediate mad love for that child? Nothing could ever separate that love, right? Not the breadth, the depth, the height, nothing. Well, wait a minute, what if somebody's adopted? Did it change? It doesn't. Parents of adopted children, you know it's the same thing. You look at that child, there is no difference. The blood doesn't matter. You love that child because you know God's giving you that child. You look at that child, that's a gift from the Lord. And immediately, what are you? Madly in love with that child. And that child didn't even say anything. Didn't even say, boo. You just, ah. Oh. Now, please understand, we're fallible creatures, right? We, we taint love. We use the term phileo and other Greek terms, right? Which describe emotional or physical, but, but there's really a beautiful term, agape love, right? That's that unconditional love. You all know the Greek term. And the idea behind it is it's without fingerprints from God, anything but God. That's really the idea of perfect love. It's not been construed, manipulated, or changed in any way for a vice towards a person or some type of um, self-indulgence. Can anybody in here honestly say right now, and praise God if you can, that you've never loved in a way that you could look at it and say, boy, my fingerprints are on it. Maybe the way you've loved or something you've done. Maybe there was even a selfish part of it. You loved someone, but it's because, boy, you loved what they can do for you or how you are with them or you get the point. Do you realize God's love is perfect? It's beyond my ability to comprehend God's love because he first loved me before I loved him. He's the author of it. Therefore, I can't define it. I'm only the recipient of it, and I can rinse and repeat. But I am certainly not an author of it. So to try to define God's love or try to explain, that's the tool trying to decide how the master operates it. Excuse me? Boy, there's pride, and that just reeks of pride. Impossible. The best we can do is try to, to try to describe that, Right? You know what I'm talking about? So his love is perfect love. And that's why his love does cast all our fears. That's why his love for, it, it, it brings in a, a what? Forgiveness by receiving him as Lord and Savior. It reconciles us, his love. He chose us. His love is the authorship of everything. It all begins with his love. And that's why it doesn't matter what you've done. Quite honestly, it doesn't even matter what you're doing right at the moment. You could be lost. You could have blown it. You could have, 
I don't want to know what you're doing. But the point is, whatever's going on in your life, you'd be struggling with addiction. You could have a... And Jesus' love for you doesn't change. It's not conditioned based on what you've done or what you're doing. It's who you are in him. He sees the end from the beginning. He already sees you holy and what he can do in you if you will let him by surrendering to him. And that's why for Jesus it would always be worth it all. For every single human. Not just us in the room, not just the body of Christ today, but every single human. So Paul is is bringing this out, and he's talking about God's unconditional, overwhelming love, not tainted again, but completely pure. Because again, after all, what is Christ trying to do in us? Make us holy, right? He says sanctification. Salvation's in an instant. But sanctification takes a what? A lifetime. Do we sanctify ourselves? I don't want you to raise your hand. Do we sanctify ourselves? No, we don't, because he who begun the good work in us will finish that good work. If I could sanctify myself, oh, I can't. And maybe I'm not the only one in this room. Maybe, we, maybe everybody else in this room would agree with me. We need Jesus. And he's the one that perfects that and does that work in us. And all he ever asked us to do is do this. Just, it's that simple. And yet it's so hard, isn't it? Because we're afraid. We try to hold on. What if? Remember that anxiety? I brought that out earlier. It's because we're trying to control. But that's because we don't understand the definition of who he is, that he is love. And that even if it's something that brings what we would call demise or destruction to our lives, our way of thinking, our existence, while that may be difficult for us, we're not giving God that due prominence or preeminence in our life to recognize he's number one. And because he's number one, even if it affects us negatively by our definition, it is still better to be in God's presence and will than to to receive his second best, which may feel good, but only for a time. You see, that's heavy, isn't it? It's heavy this morning. I mean, we're talking about real discipleship here. We're, We're talking about the difference between being a Christian that's saved and a disciple of Christ. And the Bible absolutely says they're two different things. Because he said, come follow me. There were many that believed. And then even when they did believe, you know, when he was talking about my body and my foot, they were like turned off by that. Or are you going to leave me too? He said that to his own disciples. He didn't mean that they were going to walk away from faith, that they weren't going to believe he was Messiah. But they weren't going to be all in. And what did the apostles say? Where where are we going to go, Lord? You're the Christ. You're the King. You're the God. You're Messiah. Where can we go? And that ought to be everybody's response here this morning. Lord, where are we going to go? You are God and God alone. So we, we understand so much that's implied by this word sanctification separate from the world unto God. Because it means that we're not walking on unstable soil. We're walking on that sure foundation of Christ Jesus. But that brings me to another point. Can we determine if people are saved? No. Because salvation is in a moment, sanctification is a lifetime. What we can determine is, as fruit inspectors, we can do what? We can see some of the aspects of sanctification. What do we, how do we describe that again? He already did for us. He's going to tell us that it's con- well, consecration and purification. Are we living that way? We can speak out of our mouths we're saved, but is there evidence and fruit in our lives of consecration and purification? It's, it's simply a litmus test. But even that, at best, 
We're fruit inspectors, right? Because we only see what people want us to see in a given moment. Doesn't mean that when they go home, they're not a different person. That's why I know in, in the church and leadership, one of the things I do before, you know, we, we, we acknowledge the moving of the Holy Spirit and anoint, you know, the anointing of a pastor or uh, elder or anything like that. I love it. I call the guys and, how are you doing? Yeah, you ready? Oh, yeah, the Lord's, okay, great. Good, thank you very much. Where's your wife? What? Where's your wife? Wives come in. Love your husband. What a beautiful brother. How's it going? Is he the same guy that when he walks through this door is, oh, brother, sister, can I help you? Can I serve you? Can I do this? When he gets home, is he walk through the door after a hard day of work and going, brother, you know, well, in that case, my wife, sister, you better not be saying brother, sister, that way he comes into his house and he, he goes up and he says, you know, I see, honey, you've been working. The dishes need to be done. You know, let me go over there and do the dishes. Now, just before anybody here gets it wrong, I'm a hypocrite, okay? I just want to be clear. I'm a hypocrite. I'm going to be very clear with you all. I don't do that all the time. That's my desire in my heart. But like you, I, I, that's the aim, right? But that's what he's talking about here. It's that idea. When we walk in the house, are we looking to serve, right? So I, I love to ask that question to the wives, and, and sometimes it's, it's sort of cute. You just get the, that's, that's word enough. That's word enough. It's just, a, and the head goes, I, what's wrong? That, I'm sorry, did I offend you? Did I, did I offend your husband? No, what, what's wrong? Oh. It says enough. That's what it is to be a disciple of Christ. It's not when other people are looking. Because God is always looking. God is always looking. So there's fruit. Now, look what he also says here. He says that God's work of sanctification, it uses two great forces. I call them two great forces. But one is the Holy Spirit. You see that there in, in the passage here? We just, I know we're still in verses 13 and 14. A lot of meat on that bone. And then what else? The Spirit and the belief in the truth. He calls those two things out, right? And what are that? What is that? That's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, right? And the Word of God. That's what he means there when he says the belief in truth. He says these are essential for sanctification. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're going, man, Pastor, that's what I want. That is my aim. That's my desire. You know, when guys come in or, or women come in and we do counseling, one of the first things I ask them is, are you in the Word? Well, Yeah. No, 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 I mean, really, are you in the Word? No, no, I read it for five minutes this morning. It was really amazing. The devotion was incredible. Praise the Lord, but after that, are you in the Word? Well, well no. I mean, how about at lunch? Maybe, maybe just a half hour at lunch, and then maybe, maybe a half hour, hour at dinner? I even ask that of the pastors sometimes. I ask that of the pastors, especially when difficult things go on. I ask them, how are you doing? Are you in your Word? Later. I, I'll get to it. They ask that of me. Hey, you in the word? Not, not for the church. Your four hours that you spend preparing a day. For that, that's not what I'm talking about. Are you in the word? Are you seeking Jesus? And are you being filled? And my pastors, they, you know, the pastors, they love me. They're going to invest in me that way. They're going to keep me, right? Just like you all invest in each other and keep each other bridled that way. The answer should be yes. Because I promise you all, while we'd love for you to come in and talk to us, and we, we're here for you in any circumstance, I want you to understand that there's nothing new I'm going to ever give you 
all I'm going to ever do is draw you back to the word of God, Jesus Christ. That's it. And if you've come to me for more than three or four times or five times in a session and we're working through things and, and you're like, okay, this is good. And you come back in and you're like, you keep saying the same thing. It's all I got, right? I'm drawing you back to the word of God. And that's all our elders should do. I, I want to know. I've always said the, to the flock, I said, if you ever hear an elder or a pastor come back and go, let me tell you what I think. Let me know that because I want to tell them what I think then at that point. Because it's not, a, it's not, we're not drawing men or women to ourselves, are we? Any one of us in here. We're simply drawing them to Jesus. Get out of the way. I don't want to touch the glory of God. I've seen how that goes. Right? Amen? God bless you. So, you know, if you look at verse 14 here, we'll just, we'll just continue on. I uh, think we'll probably stop at verse 17 at the rate we're going here this morning. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, quite a bit. To which he called you by our gospel. The call of salvation only comes through the gospel. Please recognize that. The gospel Paul preached. And what gospel did he preach? It's defined for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he defines it, actually. Do you remember what it says? We preach Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ in the resurrection. That's the only gospel that we need to preach. It's not fancy words. It's not a matter of intellect. It's not any of that. It's actually that simple. We preach, we preach Christ and him crucified. And that's more than enough. That's always more than enough. Now, we read for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the same glory that John wrote about in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, if you look there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you see that? We shall see him as he is. We also read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, But may the God of all grace, who called us to the eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 15, our Lord wants to exhort his saved and to sanctify them to be steadfast. I, I love this passage because um, so often in the battle, just speaking with you transparently, so often in the battle, it's easy for any one of us to get um, overwhelmed, the desire to even feel like you want to quit, the desire to kind of run in a different direction. To I don't care who you are, and I don't care how many years you've been serving in ministry or, or, or just, you know, at a job or whatever. It's difficult. It really is, friends. I mean, to pretend, that's not right. But God has told us how to avail or win in those trials. And he didn't say that we're to run headstrong in and sort of attack, you know, kick the devil in the teeth. He, he never gave us that prescription. He asked us to stand, Ephesians, elect, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, 11 through 17, stand. Here, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings this same sort of idea out. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. That's really what he's called the bride of Christ to do. 
And while it sounds easy, it's not always because I know there's a lot of you that are suffering. I, I know just knowing you, I said the same thing in the first service. I know there's families in this church right now that are battling cancer. I know there's, there's people that are mourning because they've had a loss of a loved one, a, a spouse, a, a, a child, or, or a father, or a parent in this fellowship. Two services, you get a number of people here. There's a lot going on in people's lives. I know people that have lost jobs recently, people that are, are struggling just to pay rent or mortgage, people that are looking for new jobs. And there is a whole lot that goes on in the body of Christ. Some of us may be never aware that someone to our left or right is this close from just, like, wanting to throw in the towel. I'm done. You know, and that would be real. That would be honest. I, I see some of the things that you all go through. And I'm certainly not calling anybody out here in, in any capacity. I see the things you all go through, and you, you are amazing to me. Because as I watch you suffer, as I watch the affliction and the persecution that comes upon you, and the fact that you do honor this scripture, that you do stand fast, that you don't run, you are honestly an encouragement to me every single day. And I'm not saying that, you know, I don't mince words, I don't play church, and I don't play Christian. I say it like it is. You guys are an encouragement to me. This passage is, is a passage that always encourages me when I'm having those moments of like, what is going on? Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. Now, he says, therefore. He means that Paul wants us to consider all that he has written up to this point, right? He's given compelling reasons why Christians should stand and not be moved. If you remember in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, he said, stand fast because the current circumstances. What were their current circumstances? Persecution and tribulation. Coming to a church near you. Coming to a city near you. Coming to a theater near you, right? It's coming to us. You know? What he's telling us here is that we can't be allowed to be moved. We're not to run from it. I promise you you're going to run. I know I will run. But where am I going to run? I'm either going to run to Jesus or run away from Jesus. I just, I know me. And he's telling me that in any, situ any uh, situation, any persecution, any tribulation, I must run to Jesus. I must stand fast. I can't be allowed to be moved. You might be thinking, move where, right? Move where? What's that? Uh, I'm talking about being out of the will of God taking my eyes off Jesus and allowing uh, myself to trust an intellect, a situation, circumstance, the help from someone else. Anything more than God's promises, anything more than Christ. You know what happens if you're like me? The enemy is very effective. It's just, he loves, pray for me. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest with you. He loves to put those ideas in your head. And he loves to, to have you just sort of spin for a moment. Lord, what, what are you doing here? Why is this... He loves to create those opportunities for doubt, doesn't he? For, for lacks of, lack of faith or self-doubt, you know? And every time I get those moments, you know, I, I go to the Psalms, I come to passages like this. It's a constant reminder for every one of us here this morning that whenever we have those moments or those moments of disbelief or, or doubt or we call into question even Christ's faithfulness, let's be honest, that's what we're really doing in those moments. We're questioning the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Look, nobody's arrived here. If, if that's you this morning and you're, you're, don't, 
there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Just be aware that it's a tool of the enemy and begin to stand. He's not asking you to fight back and run and have all the answers. He wants you to stand so he can show himself strong. That you recognize that he's the one that gets you through those difficult and painful circumstances. Why? So that you can remember, he uses how that word how many times in scripture? One time I'm going to do a word study on remember. I mean, he tells remember this, do, do this in remembrance of me, right? We celebrate communion. But remember, why? Because when we look back, we see all the ways that Christ has brought us through circumstances and trials and difficulties to strengthen our faith, but to also show you that he's a promise keeper. And my friend, friends, my question for you this morning is if he's done that, why isn't he going to continue to do that? You know, we look back and we say, sure, he's brought us through these difficulties. But then for some reason, when we juxtaposition, we begin to look forward. But wait a minute, this is different. Is it? My God and your God is bigger than any problem or circumstance in our lives. It doesn't mean in the moment I'm not weary down to fall to my knees and begin to cry out to God. That happens and it should happen. But I know ultimately all things will be worked to the glory of God. All things, even if I don't like it, I know it's good for my soul. And I've, I've come to that place in my heart, in my mind, in my soul where I've accepted God's preeminence. And I really believe that's what scripture is teaching all of us to do so that we don't try to grab back onto control because we know all that's going to produce is anxiety. And as scripture teaches, when the anxiety spins out of control, control, it produces what? Sorrow. We use that term today. We don't say sorrow. We say what? Depression. But it's in the Bible. It tells us that's what happens. When anxiety goes unchecked, it turns into depression, sorrow. Yet Ecclesiastes 7.3 says sorrow can be used by God because what's it do? It makes the heart of man come to the Lord That's the whole purpose. So he's saying, stand fast, right? Stand fast in the persecutions that you face. I mean, I want you to to get this here. This is the model church, right? In in 1 Thessalonians, he lays that out. You are a model church to all of Macedonia, right? Just so we don't miss it. You know, they were struggling with understanding that they might have missed Christ's coming. Okay, that didn't happen. Okay, well, then we're in the Great Tribulation. No, that didn't happen. Well, then why are we... Suffering like this, affliction, hardship. He says, stand fast. Judgment's coming. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, we looked at that. He says, all the wrongs are going to be made right in Christ Jesus. Stand fast that these things needs be. It will, be, it will get worse before it gets better in Christ Jesus. It will. And to teach anything opposite of that is just asking for problems. You wonder why people struggle with uh, bipolar disorders or different, I'm using a term, a psychological term, but you wonder why that? They're actually realists. Why? Why do I say that that way? Because it's the up and down. It's the idea of they wake, they go to sleep, okay, maybe it's going to be better tomorrow. They wake up and they're still living in a fallen world, even though they're sanctified and they're saved. And they go, oh, it's going to be better tomorrow. They're opportunists. That's what they really are. Define it as it is. And then the next day, They find themselves in the same situation. But we say, oh, there's something medically wrong with you. No, you're a realist. Isaiah 5, 
They're calling evil good and good evil. You know, what, stand fast. It's going to get worse before Christ makes it better. We read, and granted, we won't be here, but the coming of what? The man of sin, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the lawless one, Satan, is going to possess him and give him all the power, uh, signs, and lying wonders. Second Thessalonians 2.9. We've read that already. Again, we're not going to be here, but the point is, is that evil is going to increase. Wickedness is going to increase. We shouldn't be surprised by that. As a matter of fact, it's an opportunity because our light, as darkness becomes more pervasive, what happens to our light? Our light becomes brighter simply by the fact that the darkness around us becomes darker. We become brighter. Not to mention Christ already doing the work of sanctification in us and actually making our light brighter. We are a witness. We are a testimony. But pastor, that's really hard. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Look, look at me. Look with me at 2 Timothy. I'm going to be ready to close here. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Bible never promises that Christians aren't going to suffer persecution because of their belief and faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse. Do you see this? And worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is scriptural. It's going to get worse. But you must continue. There it is. Endure. You're the light, right? You're steadfast. In these things which you have learned and be assured of knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from your childhood you have known the holy scriptures which you are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in which Christ Jesus, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete. The woman of God may be complete. Don't you want to be complete? Thoroughly equipped for every good work. This was Paul's swan song. Second. Second Timothy, it's his epistle, it's his swan song before he's about to be taken off the scene, right? Look at John chapter, um, I think it's 16 there. Verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world, Jesus said. And if he overcame the world and he's in us, we have to, what? Overcome the world. This is so temporal. So temporal. And if we fix our eyes on the temporal like it's the eternal, that's what drives us crazy or that's what consumes us. But when we see how temporal this, this world really is, it's, a, it's, it's but let me give you, you, some of you have kids, parents, you have kids in here, right? How quick did your kids grow up? How quick are they growing up? Like a blink of an eye, right? Like if you go back and think 20 years ago, you know, my oldest is 20. He's in college. You know, he visits in, he travels, he's doing it. He's in New York. He's coming back. He's here, you know. I can remember him when I just, you know, held him in my arms. Like, you know, we took him home from the hospital. I remember looking at Lisa, go, what do we do now? <laughs> I knew how to get this far. What do we do now? And you know what she said? My wife was so wise. She said, we love him. That was even before we were saved. 
We love him. Even she understood it began with love. Hmm. He also says what? That we hold on and we're steadfast because of our glorious destiny. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. And then he tells us, stand fast and hold to the traditions. We must keep standing on God's word delivered by both authoritative word. He says here, the word and by the letter of the apostles. What's he talking about? The epistles. The epistle we're reading right now. Traditions. You know, the Bible typically recognizes traditions as a dangerous proponent of religious systems. You can look at Matthew 15, verses 2 and 3, or traditions of man, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Usually, that's the sort of earmarks of religion, right? He kind of, Jesus, when he was on earth, kind of criticized the religious leaders because they had made it about legalism and, and traditions. I think of, you know, I, a lot of you know, I was raised Catholic, and I think of, you know, the, certain traditions in the Catholic Church that directly are opposed to Scripture, that we have to make choices, don't we? We have to make choices in those matters. Will we honor the Scriptures? Or, you know, or will we honor in Christ? Or will we honor man's tradition? No tradition should ever be put on the plane of God's word in Christ. And as a matter of fact, doesn't he say that he lifts his word higher than his very name? Doesn't he say that in scripture? That his word is listed very higher than his very name? What he's talking about here is the apostolic traditions, right? Acts 2.42. It's the word of God, the recording of the New Testament. The things that were being passed to the early church, communion, these things I, I give you, these things I leave you, do, you know, do this. Delivered in a way of teaching. Obviously, it means that <clears throat> to the Thessalonians, whether they heard it through private conversation with the Apostle Paul, whether it was through Pastor Paul and he was, he was addressing the congregation. He said, these are the things you stick to, not, not new. There's nothing new in your scripture. If somebody says, man, I got something new for you, you, you that Holy Spirit check in your heart should be like, what? There's nothing new in scripture. There's nothing new. There's no new gimmick right? That they're going to, all it is, is an alternate gospel. There's nothing new. The real test is, are we following the commandments and statutes and judgments of God? How about that? Instead of looking for the new, how about we actually obey what we've already been given, right? I'm always convicted by that personally. And then in verse 16 and 17, we'll, we'll close right here. He says, it's, it's more of his, his closing, if you will, just in prayer in this area. He says, now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God, our Father, who has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So the idea here is he's praying for the Thessalonians. He says, who have loved us, right? Before Paul asked God to do something specific for the Thessalonians, he remembered all God has done for them. God had loved them. He gave them an everlasting consolation and a, a good hope by grace. When we pray, do we remember God's past faithfulness and present blessing? You know, his faithfulness in the past uh, promises, because that's the faithfulness of his future for us. He says, comfort your hearts and establish you, right? That's what he asks. He could have prayed anything. Lord, I pray you take their suffering away. That's not what he prayed. No, he, he prayed. And I know we're like, why? That's not what he prayed. He asked them to do things. First, as a good under-shepherd. As just a good human being, a born-again believer. He asked them two things. What's the first one? Comfort their hearts. 
There are real people suffering and going through difficulty here. Many of us, many of you. The last thing you want to do is go up to them and Bible thump them and go, don't you know the Bible says this? You should count it all a joy, brother, in the middle of this going on or that. No, don't do that. Bear each other's burdens. How about you sit down and lean on their shoulder and cry with them? How about that? That's living out your faith. No, that's, that requires us to invest and be transparent and be uncomfortable because we give our heart. And that, that's hard, isn't it? That costs us something, doesn't it? I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek there. But that's real. It has to cost us something. It costs Christ everything. Second, he asked us to do what? Establish them in every good word and work. So the prayer for comfort and, and continued testimony and work for Jesus is fitting in light of what? Specific needs of the believers that are under pressure, and that's exactly what they're dealing with. This alone, just this one passage alone, can teach us how to pray and intercede for others. He doesn't even get to himself. He's going to come to himself in a little bit in chapter 3. He's going to say, hey, brothers, pray for us too. We, need, we cover your prayer, right? He's going to say, I covered all of your prayers. I know when I was out sick, so many of you were praying for me, and I know it was your prayers that, that the Lord heard and made me well. I know it was your prayers. Anybody who's been in ministry and worked or gone on a tra- uh, missionary trip or you've done anything like that, you know when they're back home praying for you, you know God's moving. You know you're, you're, you're able to walk in the will of Christ and know you're invincible when you're in the will of God. You know, we, I remember missionary We've been on missionary trips where we had one of the Girls come down with a fever. We're in the middle of a jungle, and literally there's no, nothing to get. We don't have talent of anything at that moment. And literally, you call back home, and right at that moment, it happens to be during a prayer meeting, everybody starts praying for that girl. You find out when you get off the plane and you land back home, and you find out that everybody's praying for that girl at that moment, that something, somebody just, she just can't, just coincidentally, there is no coincidence. She just came to that girl, that girl came to her, I'm thinking one in particular, she came to one of the guy's minds that was praying that night and everybody started lifting up the prayer team that was over there. I, I can't imagine what it was like. Spurgeon said that when you came into his church, people said, oh my gosh, Spurgeon, look at, look at, look at what's going on here. This is an amazing work, Spurgeon. And he says, you want to know where the real fire comes from? He says, let me take you. And he'd bring them down to the basement and you'd see 500 saints on their knees praying during the service going on. Do you know that every morning here at 7.45, before many of you even get here, there's a group of saints that are in the prayer room. My heart is that, you know what, those in first service, as before they go home for second service, where are they? In the prayer room praying or wherever they are. I mean, it doesn't have to physically be. But it's that idea. People that pray together stay together. Amen? Will you guys stand with me? Beautiful word of encouragement here. Beautiful word of encouragement from the Pastor Paul, Apostle Paul here. Next week, uh, if the Lord should tarry and we come back, we'll, uh, we'll look at chapter 3 and we'll finish off this, uh, this passage here and then we'll begin uh, 1 Timothy. So um, I'm at our time, I'm just going to close this right here because the time we went over, we won't have a closing song. Father, we just thank you again, Lord, for your heart and for your desire to want to encourage and to um, exhort your bride, the bride of Christ, specifically Thessalonica here, Lord, but certainly we know you're doing this for all of the church today, God. We know that you're seated or seated or standing at the right hand of the Father, constantly making intercession for all of the bride of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that.
And we pray, God, that we will stand fast, Lord. We pray for strength right now. There are so many in this church. And, Lord, at the, in the body of Christ as a whole, Lord, people in other countries right now laying down their lives knowing that their wives, their children could be martyred at any moment, Lord, because of wickedness and evil, God. And you've told us to stand, not to run from it, but to be in the midst of it, to bring the light. God, we pray strength. We pray a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I know I can't. We can't do these things without you, Jesus. We need you to stand. We need you to show yourself strong in these last days, God, that we can be your people, your disciples, your love. And that, Lord, your, your, your relationship, our relationship with you will grow ever deeper, God. We love you, Jesus Christ. You are the reason we live. You are the reason we are here. May you be glorified, not only in just our spirits, Lord, but in our words and our deeds. And we pray all of this, Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, bless your people here. Please, Lord, I do pray. I know Pastor Paul didn't pray that there, Lord, for the suffering. God, I do pray it. I'm a weak man. Lord, I pray, please, God, I pray for the suffering of your people right now in this fellowship and in the body of Christ. But I also know, God, your grace is sufficient. So please come alongside, Lord, and strengthen. I pray all of this in your holy name. We pray all of this, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. I